Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Miss Emily Kate Stevens. Hi. Currently holidaying in Greece, looking yeah. lush, seeing you. <laughs> How was your week? My week, this bit in Greece has actually been really good. I felt really good. I have run, I have water skied, I have cycled, I have swum, I have paddleboarded, I have lived like a normal person for eight days. But that's off the back of the day before I traveled here. I was on my knees. I was such a mess. My shakes were so bad that I didn't know how I could stop them. Just these tremors, my headache, my mood. I thought that I felt as bad as I did back in the summer of 2021. So I thought I'd gone back to yet. What you said even last week was that you think your crashes are shorter. Shorter. Yeah. And your recovery is quicker. Yeah. And I think that crash was, I'd had a really busy couple of weeks, but um, I'd also had on the Sunday, um, I'd been to the Formula E race and it was all, everything was inside, really loud, very social, a lot of sensory overlaid and I think that might be one of the things for me is that kind of sensory overlaid because you know that I get it when I've been with lots of people or in crowded places or so I think that's one of my triggers so I was quite shaky traveling here but since I've been here and been in the water I've been all right and you my love tell me about you well we know that I had that IUD fitted to help me with my really heavy periods um it's not been a very good experiment um, I just had it removed this morning. Right. The OB that I see here in the States said, you are one of those people that's hypersensitive to progesterone. So when they tell women that an IUD just puts the progesterone into your uterus, it's bullshit, basically. Of course it leaks into the rest of your body and gets into your bloodstream. Yeah, I was, what I find really concerning about this is that it's been pushed on me as well and everyone's just told, have this put in and, it, and we'll sort everything out. Yeah. I don't think that you were fully informed of potential side effects or what to watch for and actually no one's monitored you since you had that put in. So if you hadn't had that obgyne appointment last week completely separately, something that you'd organised in the US. Yeah. You might still be in a situation that you don't know what's going on with your body or you didn't know that that was a reaction to it. I think you know that you felt pretty awful since you had it. Yeah, I definitely have not felt well. And it what's been building over the last... So I've had it about two months. What's been building over the last month is this incredible amount of water retention I'm getting, which is then pushing up my blood pressure. Mm. My blood pressure is crazy high. But the OB said it's... It's most likely due to the extra water that you're carrying. Oh, really? So, yeah. So, hopefully, I should start to feel better in a few days. I think the moment, moment that came out, I felt relief. And have you been recommended to take blood pressure meds as you come off it now? Well, I am because I have in the past with the long COVID, my blood pressure has been affected. So, I, I take it. But like, I've been really well before that, before this. I had been running. I had been building up my... Stamina, my HRV was great. My heart rate at night was coming down after two years of just going up. You know, this was a real insult to my body 
whatever this was. In the hopes of making me better, I think I put myself back. Mm. Um, at the moment, in a kind of a mini crash, and I'm trying to navigate my way through that. Like yesterday, I noticed that my heart rate was higher, and I was a bit breathless just walking around. And I haven't felt like that in months. There's a big difference, isn't there, between I think for a lot of these past years, we've pushed through, we've got through, we felt like crap, but we've had a lot of things that we have to do. And there's a big difference between those days and the days that you do actually feel okay. Yeah. In the past week, I have felt like a normal person. I've remembered what it's like to feel like me and to just get on with things and to enjoy things and not to be worrying about managing your energy levels. That's probably where we end up then also crashing. But there's a big difference between the getting through and the actual feeling normal. And you'd felt, you'd felt all right, well enough to run. Yeah, I've done loads this summer. I like you. I've surfed, I've walked, I've run, I've done all kinds of things. And just been super busy. Very busy when I'm at home. Like, incredibly, this has not been a break. This is more of a fresh course in life. I'm spending some time with Ron Garbo, who was one of our interviews a few weeks ago, and he's helping me through. And that's really helpful. What an incredible privilege to see him in the flesh and to have him help me through trying to build on my positive gains that I've got over the last few years. And he keeps saying to me that the key is not to get into a big crash and then reverse all the work you've done. So I'm really mindful of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's fantastic as well, because we have the luxury of getting to speak to these people. But for you to then actually be able to put what he has theoretically told us into practice on yourself is pretty incredible. Ron Garbo was one of those people that when we spoke to, I think we felt that just had such humanity. And one of the things that keeps recurring in these interviews and these people that we speak to is the people who are so embroiled in long COVID, the extent of the humanity that they are showing and the length that they are going to, to try and help us, I'm finding really incredible. And our guest this week, Professor Harlan Krumholtz, is another example of someone who is taking long COVID, but it's almost as if he's not just stopping with long COVID, some of these people are trying to influence healthcare overall and the way that patients are treated. Yeah. And he was particularly good for you, for you this, this week. He's a cardiologist and professor of medicine at Yale. But yeah, he had recently done this paper looking at tremors and internal vibrations. So what better time to do it than when I was so shaky that day? I mean, we couldn't really have planned it better. I was just, my eyes were twitching. Everything was shaking. Everything was fuzzing. So I think that we've got a lot more to discuss with him, touch on with him. This is what we've got so far. Why don't we start with the beginning? Tell us about your journey into looking at long COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's a journey. How did a cardiologist end up way over here? I mean, there are people interested in POTS in particular, but my interests are quite quite global and, and broad ranging. I guess it was just that at the beginning of the pandemic, it was all hands on deck. Anybody who could contribute should contribute. And of course, we had a lot of different kinds of research going on. 
focused in cardiovascular, but our group also has a pretty broad view of healthcare and, and our emphasis is on improving health, improving tangible outcomes for people. I'm an outcomes researcher. Mm. I care about the consequences. I, I don't want to brag about breakthroughs. I don't want to brag about programs. I want to actually see progress. I want to see whether or not people's lives are tangibly improved. And so our work is very much focused on whether or not we can bring science and then the implementation and application of that science to bear for the benefit of, of people. And we won't be satisfied. We're not just trying to publish papers or make a name in any field. We're actually trying to see whether or not we can drive forward progress. So you're talking about tangible patient outcomes, people getting better. Yeah. I mean, we're trained. I'm socialized. I'm part of this system. Our reward system is how many papers, how many citations, how many grants. And what enamored me as I got started in my career was the idea that None of that really matters if you haven't made a difference in people's lives. So the question really is, what's the value of the information you're producing and how can you do it in a way that, that makes a difference? And, and it's a high bar because in a way you can produce a lot of science, but actually not see it tangibly improve anyone's life. And, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. So, but that's what our group is dedicated to. So anyway, back to the, how I got there in the beginning of the pandemic, in the all hands on deck mentality, one of the things that I could bring and our team could bring was how can we understand what's happening? And a lot of our work in the beginning was focused on the acute consequences of the pandemic and how was it spreading? Who was being left out? How are we best able to manage? And what, what kind of things could we do? Were you specifically looking at that from a cardiac viewpoint or it was a, a more general overview of people's condition? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And that's what I mean. I was sort of pulled from cardiovascular focus into thinking about it more generally. I, I became part of a committee in Connecticut on reopening. How could we reopen safely in Connecticut? And I started doing some CDC studies and I was pulled into a whole bunch of different places and I was pretty open to it. I said, you know, anywhere I could help, I was glad to apply skills that I had. And, and so also for our team, a lot of us just dropped what we were doing to try to see if we could help in the moment. And so I, I got involved in the pandemic in that way. And soon became obvious that the pandemic had a long tail. I mean, while everyone was focused on acute effects, there were a lot of people for whom, as you know very well, listeners to this podcast are very familiar, you know, it never ended. And I get the emphasis in the beginning and throughout on prevention. Sure, that's, that's the best way to prevent long-term outcomes, long-term disability and long-term consequences. And on the acute treatment, which, by the way, could also favorably affect long-term outcomes. But there were, we needed to focus also on the people who were suffering. And there was a, a large number of people who weren't just bothered by symptoms that were persistent, but whose lives were unraveling because of what was happening. And, and it began to open my eyes to this whole entire field of post-infectious consequences. Admittedly, it, it wasn't an area of content expertise for me. But one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is how can we make research better, faster, more effective? How can we deliver the kind of knowledge that people need? And more efficient ways. And I'd also been working for decades on how do we include people in the research as partners? How do we actually transform the way in which research is done from this very hierarchical, top-down approach to one that would be more collaborative, more involving of people, that we, we were actually producing something together? This was an opportunity, I thought, where there was no legacy expertise and the patients were playing a very important role that maybe we could begin to develop new ways of doing research that, that could stick. And then I got to meet Akiko Iwasaki, who is, you know, world-class, extraordinary 
immunologist. And you hadn't worked together previously? Never, never. I was aware of her, of course, because she's just got such an extraordinary profile and does such amazing work, but I hadn't had that opportunity. We were on a panel together. And after the panel, I told her, if there's any way that I could help her or we could work together, I'd be up for it. More than up for it, I'd be eager and excited about it. And we started thinking together about how could a, a leading immunologist work with someone who has a lot of skills on the clinical research side and is sort of focused on doing research differently. Could we create something novel and, and make, it, make an impact? And so what was your first piece of work that you, or first project that you embarked on together? Yeah. So the first project is one that's, I think, just beginning to really get its legs, which is this idea of trying to create a digital, decentralized, participant-centric registry where people could join and be part of it. They could fill out surveys online. They could live anywhere. They could connect their medical records. They could connect their wearables. They could bring together all this data. I'd been working for about 15 years on a project. Do you want to hear this whole story, how this evolves? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So here's how it goes. I'm training new doctors in a program that's funded by a one, one of the largest and most prominent foundations in the U.S., Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And they, they had been funding these centers to take doctors who had finished their training and to steep them in research methods and in policy and, and in ethics and prepare them to be future leaders. And it was one of these plum positions. I mean, an opportunity to work with just extraordinary individuals and to help strengthen them, put them in a position to do important things and improve outcomes in the world. And we were facing a renewal. The foundation had decided, the foundation was enormously generous. They've sunsetted this program subsequently just because they had funded it for almost 40 years and had decided to go in a different direction. But they would fund you for 10 years and and generously so that you could really help support these cohorts of young doctors. And appropriately, it's now expanded to health professionals more broadly. It's been continued in a different form. But at that time, they said, if you want to now apply, and they opened it, it was an open competition, not just to the existing sites. They said, we want you to institute community-based participatory research. And here I was at a fairly prominent institution, been trained in good places, had done a lot of research. I I didn't know anything about community-based participatory research. And so I had to start digging in to see, you know what, there's a research where you actually would go to the people that, that you're studying and actually start opening conversations about what do they think is important and and how should research be organized and, and what kind of questions should we be asking? And it had a profound effect on me because in the beginning it was like, yeah, we want to get this grant. Let's dig into this. But as I started getting involved, talking to people in the community, hearing their experience with researchers, which was largely awful and feeling as if these big academic institutions were tone deaf to what they thought was important or how they experienced clinical research studies. I mean, it it really opened my eyes. And also the kind of questions that we never got near, but that people in the community felt were so important. Why isn't anyone paying attention to these kinds of questions, whether they're about the things that affected their daily lives? And so we built a program within our group that began to teach it, brought in teachers from the community, and we learned to listen carefully to what people had to say. And it made us, I thought, a lot better And then I was nominated and and served as one of the founding governors of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which had come out of our healthcare reform, the Affordable Care Act, and had been given $3 billion to, ostensibly in the beginning in the healthcare reform, it was supposed to be doing comparative effectiveness research, comparing A versus B and 
helping inform choices within healthcare, like NICE does in NHS. Although no one would have said that out loud in the U.S. because, you know, everyone's afraid to say anything about uh, socialized medicine. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, we're torturing people with financial toxicity every time somebody has to get care. But we were sitting around a room and the Affordable Care Act that was an incomplete act because in this country, the way it worked was the Senate passed it. The House passed their version. They were supposed to reconcile the versions, but then Ted Kennedy died. He was replaced by someone from the other party. There was no chance the Senate was going to pass anything different than what they had already passed something. They weren't going to pass it again. So everyone had to just take what had been passed in the Senate. And this P. Corey was part of that. We got together in a room, a bunch of people didn't really know what to do with this. And I said, well, why aren't we building something? Let's really take the name Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute and really focus on the patient, try to bring that perspective to PCORI. It subsequently, it worked to some extent. It's hard to bring change because the way people are thinking. But, but it got me thinking that we need to start building ways where patients themselves start. We need to tip the balance of power. We need to start putting patients in a position where they can really exert themselves more. And it led me to create something called Hugo Health, which was, could I help people gain agency over their healthcare data? So then researchers would want to come to them. They had something researchers wanted. And in order to be able to make the partnership, researchers would have to be worthy of it. They would have to show humility in interacting with patients. And then something big could come out of that. When I talked to Akiko, I said, this might be the chance to really show people how you could do it. And so we could bring people in. They could be part of a large study. They would have agency over their own data. We'd only have access to data because they permissioned it through consent. They could pull it back anytime. We would constantly have to try to show them that this was a good choice. We would have town halls where we would talk to people. We would return results as we learned about them. We would listen to their suggestions. There's no reason that research has to be so cumbersome. People who are in research studies, they're in it because they want answers to their conditions. And people drop out because the research is so noxious, so difficult. They're so not respected. They don't stick with it. And so could we create something that delighted people by being part of it, that made people feel honored and respected? This was the idea for the first thing that we did was, can we create an observation study? Now we've done a randomized trial. We're doing a randomized trial, 15 days of Paxlovid for long COVID. And we're trying to incorporate all those same principles of partnership and respect and honoring. And I told our team, when we asked people at the end of this, how did they feel about participation? We want them to say they were delighted. We don't want them just to say it was good, it was fine, I don't have complaints. We want them to say they felt part of it. They're part, they felt part of the team. And so we're both trying to drive the science, but also how we're doing the research, I think, is also important. And, and we'll see it. We're testing the waters on this. And does that fall under the LISTEN study? So the observational study is the LISTEN study. Anybody around the, the world can join. We have a sub study within LISTEN where subgroups of people in LISTEN are having biospecimens collected in their homes. We want to make it convenient for people, or they can go somewhere and meet people if they don't want to bring them to their home. But it's concierge service. You know, if you're willing to donate blood and saliva, let's make it easy for you. And so we have some subgroups in that. And also just to say in the LISTEN study, we expanded it from just long COVID to also include people who are reporting uh, some post-vaccination syndromes that, that have some similar types of symptoms as people with long COVID. So again, just in the spirit of identifying people who are suffering and wanting to, to help and see if we could learn together, we built that into the LISTEN study as well. I think it's great to build that into the study. So, uh, hopefully that, that, that will also infiltrate the medical 
profession at some stage. When I went for my first long COVID clinic appointment, in fact, my only long COVID clinic appointment in three and a half years, I was kept there for four and a half hours. And for someone who has long COVID, that is a a massive toll on your body. And it's not considerate at all to your patient. I know that our healthcare providers are overstretched, but there are simple things that you could do just to tailor it to people who are actually sick. I think that's a toxicity of the system. We've caused an adverse effect in you. I mean, you're, you're tired, you're having trouble. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm just saying people in this situation may be trouble concentrating. And you ask them to sit in a waiting room. Yeah, on a hospital chair in a waiting room for four and a half hours. And then how long was your appointment? I did have four appointments within that of about 10 minutes each. So there are four hours just to see someone for 10 minutes. It's yeah. just maddening, maddening it can be. Yeah. Can be. What I like about this program that you're developing is this idea that patients have authority over their condition because we're so often dismissed. And that's led to this two camps of doctors who believe that this is a syndrome because they can test for it or they can't test for it. So they don't almost don't believe you because there are no this the, the tests aren't um conclusive. Conclusive or refined enough to look at the symptoms and say, Okay, we understand because people with long COVID are suffering greatly. And you go into a doctor and you say, well, I can't stand up, I feel dizzy. And they're, well, we can't help you. So it's really important to create this two-way street between the medical profession and the patients. But there are still so many people out there who don't believe that long COVID is a thing. That's the insult to injury, right? It's the, again, another toxicity of the system is to feel dismissed in this whole process. It, it's just sad. And I will say, you know, doctors are built to have pattern recognition. And when something new comes up, there's a, I, I'm not asking for your sympathy for, for those of us who are doctors, but there is a sense of inadequacy. And, and I think that that sometimes manifests as disbelief or, or just thinking it's not me, it's, it's you. It's not that I can't figure out what's going on. It must be, this isn't a thing or, or something like that. But the, the doctors are in, in a bad position because there are no evidence-based treatments. They're, they're, there's not a lot of good education about this. And they really can't, uh, in the current setting, 10 minutes. I mean, honestly, patients who are suffering and living with long COVID, they need hour appointments. They need hour and a half appointments. Really to catalog and understand what's going on and to, to really help document this and, and to, to follow them over time. It takes a big investment. And by the way, it's not just doctors, doctors, nurses, physical therapists, a whole range of of social workers. I mean, people are suffering from not being able to work. They're they're having problems with meeting their bills and so forth. And so we're just not equipped or configured for this. Then you throw a doctor in an appointment. They probably dread these appointments because what can they do? And they're hampered by that. And it's not a good situation when we're facing something like this. We need to fundamentally reconfigure the way it cares. But getting back to the tipping the balance of power. That's where the voices need to be heard. I mean, the other thing is in most situations in medicine, there's an asymmetry of of information and knowledge. That's, by the way, in a modern world, that's getting smaller because people have access to a lot of sources of information. But in the case of long COVID, the experts are the people who are living with it. The doctors actually have very little knowledge about this. The asymmetry is inverted. It's really the people who are living with it. And that's why we have to listen carefully. We have to learn from the people who are having this experience. And, and lots of people have come up with ways to mitigate some of the symptoms, even just physically. How do they manage their days, the tricks and turns about how they survive? We need to find ways to talk about that and at least spread that knowledge around. But, but here's an example where we can say that it should be truly partnered. 
I mean, you guys should be helping to design what these clinics look like because you know what is the experience of having to make appointments and, and sitting and going through them. And, and when people don't even know what to ask you, I think patients can be helping to create the forms that everyone should be filling out before they get to the appointment. So you're not even wasting time in the appointment, just answering questions. You want to get to the point. Let them review it before you walk in the room. Flip the classroom. Make this just about they can review what they're already seeing. There are lots of ways I think that we could advance the way that this works, but retrofitting it into the old system is just not the right way. <laughs> there are so many things that I could say in response to that just because of the my experience all through it, even right back to when I ha had to apply for an appointment at the long COVID clinic, they gave me a form that was actually related to people who had been in intensive care. So everything was related to whether you'd been intubated. And that was what the NHS were using for, for, yeah, for, for the first year, at least, because I didn't get an appointment until two and a half years in. So yes, there are a lot of things that the healthcare systems could be learning from from patients. We're presupposing that the, A, that there's a will to look at long COVID and B, that there's the money. And certainly in the UK, we're encouraged to think and believe that COVID is on the wane, that it's no longer an issue. And that when figures come out, like there's two and a half million people missing from the workforce due to chronic ill health, long COVID is never mentioned. It's an, it's an inconvenient truth, right? It is an, absolutely an inconvenient truth. And that that worries the community or the cohort of long COVID patients because there is no will to find solutions to our problems when you're looking at it on, on a big scale. There are yeah. amazing people like you and Akiko and David well, no, Trino no, no, who are no, doing no. this. It's amazing, amazing people work. like you guys who are keep pushing this forward. I mean, maybe we should be using ChatGPT to just start producing everyday letters. You know, they're just changing them slightly where we're just like mounting a campaign, you know. This is the thing. You can't expect people with long COVID to be protesting on the street. These are people who are sick, getting through the day. Yeah. Of course, you're not alone. MECFS, there's a whole range of illnesses that I believe one day we'll understand. And then we'll look back at, at the cruelty of suggesting that we, it's all in our heads and anxiety it's all in your heads. but it's so it's funny so many people will say to to me, well, why haven't you seen this person? Or why haven't you oh, call this person? You should see this doctor. You should see that. And the thing is that you just half the time you are chronically sick you do not have the capacity to spend every day chasing around doctors but in the vein of patients feeding into research i think that you're the co-founder of med archive yeah a co-founder yeah was that something that you had co-founded previously or is that actually in response to working with patients on this? Because that is therefore a place that you are asking people, patients, to actually feed into the studies and feed into the research. I'm so glad you asked that. And yeah, that I believe that too, that it's a place where people can have a voice. There's no firewall, nothing you have to pay to see these preprints. And and there's a comment section. You can also sign up if there's an interesting paper that you want to understand and follow. You can sign up and when people make comments or if it's ultimately published in peer review, you can be notified. For people who don't know what a preprint server is, is when someone's working on a research article and they're beginning to think it's ready to share with the world, maybe to submit for journal for publication, they may want to share it while it's undergoing peer review. It can take years, honestly, for something that's submitted to a peer-reviewed journal before it actually shows up in the public. And when it does, 
it's often we call this a firewall. It's behind a firewall where actually to get it, someone will ask you to pay 30 or 40 or 50 bucks, you know, to see it. If you're in the public, even if it was paid for by public funds, it can be hard to get access. This goes to the theme of, again, our group has spent a lot of time trying to figure out if we can improve research. One area that we've worked hard on is open science. How can we get away from the idea of researchers thinking, I own this data, to this data exists if I have permission from the people in the study to help as many smart people as possible to work on it to make progress. The whole purpose of the data is about progress. And, and I've been now saying that every time you get funded for a project, it should be for two purposes. One is to complete the aims of the study. The second is to produce data that other people can work on that can extend our knowledge in other directions. So we started a Yale Open Data Access project where we were working with Johnson & Johnson and trying to make all of their trials open to the public so people, researchers could work on them and others as well. We've been pushing this agenda for a long time. There was a moment before the pandemic where I and, and Joe Ross, who works with me and, and others on our team, we became aware that these preprint servers that have been servicing mostly the life sciences or basic sciences could be used in clinical science. And it could be that while people are submitting their work for peer review or it's undergoing iterative change, they could essentially post it for, I, I've been talking about it like this, post it for public comment. And by the way, wh where did this start? This started in among physicists who used to take a, a paper they were working on and paste it to their door so when their colleagues walked by, they could grab it and make comments on it. That was the original thing for the preprint servers. But now in this area, you could submit it as long as we, on the MedArchive board, we just want to make sure that no one was posting something that could cause harm. So if someone posted a paper that said you should be taking bleach for, for COVID, we, mm -hmm. we would say that's better after peer review. Take that to a journal. We don't think we should put that up. But largely, <laughs> we would post almost everything people would submit. And then it's there for open comment. And then it just happened as the pandemic emerged to be a really good tool for people to use as they were making new observations. They could immediately post it when something like the wonderful recover trials that were being done in the UK, you knew that that was a trusted group. When they put that up, they were, they were going to be able to stand behind it. You could read it for yourself. Others were commenting on it. And so I think it was transformative. You end up doing a lot of things in your career. We did this. I didn't think this would be one of the major things I did. I thought it would be important, but in the pandemic, it became really important. And it's really proud to do. I work with, there were colleagues at the BMJ and at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories became co-founders with us. Joe and I were going to just do it. And then we ran into others who were thinking along the same lines. We said, well, let's combine forces and see if we can make this thing go. They've, they've been wonderful contributors and they've made it possible to. And it, yeah, it's been a great experience. Is there a flip side to it? I know that you say you wouldn't let certain people paste about taking bleach, but is there a flip side in terms of uh, have you seen studies put on there that actually are dubious in there? I would say that some people seem to have an agenda, but what we do is we say it has to be a scientific article. If it has patients, it has to have an IRB ethics approval. The author it can't be anonymous. It has to be a person and there, there has to be an affiliation. So there are checks and balances, even if you don't specifically censor what is being put out We there. make sure there are no identifiers that would reveal anyone's identity. And then we ask ourselves this question, if this is not true, is it likely to cause harm? I think over time, we've gotten a, a little more comfortable about this. In the beginning, we were a little tighter about it. We were getting a lot of criticism in the beginning about that we would cause so much harm, but so far, I haven't seen any evidence of that. And when people put up stuff that's a little loony, I mean... <laughs> People can tell, you know, <laughs> people can tell. 
It's also, again, looking at the flip side, it creates so much hope that then there's a drive amongst the community. This looks promising. Why are we not doing more? Why are we not at the second stage of testing? Or why is this not available to us? There are some studies that we've seen that are small studies that look very hopeful. And yet within the social media groups and long COVID community, there's a huge backlash because they feel that everything's moving so slowly. I know it's maddening. That's maddening too. I tell Akiko, you know, I just wish we could move faster too. I mean, we're we're just as guilty of this as everyone. I mean, we're we're trying to push, but but things. I mean, I don't know. It's not satisfying to anyone, but it just it does take time. You know, but you also can't move faster than people's physiology or the way that symptoms are developing or changing or recovery. You want to do rigorous science on the listen side too. We need people to fill out the surveys and to connect the records and to move things forward. And I will only tell you that every day we have a pit in our stomach that we're not moving faster. And I know if I'm in your position, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Blah, blah, blah. Like, just move. Yeah, we need to move faster. There are people suffering every day. And and I think that's why also connecting with patients is so important. You never forget. You're in in the midst of it all the time, talking to people who are doing it, it's a reality check. And that's why I really love these town halls we do. I've never done this before. We have this study, the listen study, for example, we're going to do this with the trial also. Maybe by the end, I can also promote the two studies. So people want to join. Of course. You know, what we did was we said, we're going to have a town hall. So everybody in the study is going to be invited and we'll meet for an hour. We'll make a little bit of presentation about something going on in the study or what we're learning. Online or in person. We just do a Zoom and then we yeah. just say, and then we're just going to field questions. I tell you, the, one of the first times we did it, Akiko presented for about a half hour. Of course, she's the rock star and she's just, you know, a, a, a extraordinary. She's the nicest rock star you've ever met though, isn't she? She <laughs> is out of this world, out of this world. And, and it's such a privilege to work with her. And so she presented and then, we, you know, we don't ask everyone their schedules. We just have to pick a time. So we just said, okay, five o'clock on a Wednesday. And about 15% of the study showed up just spontaneously. And to see all those people, and then when Akiko finished presenting, I mean, all those hearts and claps coming up at the end, I I just thought, I can't believe that we've never given people in our studies access to us before like this. I mean, you know, I'm asking you to be part of a study and you really don't have access to me. It's just like mystery study as opposed to real people who are the investigators and trying to create the means by which we can make a connection with each other. And I don't know, I find them every time we do them both moving and heartening. We, we've got to figure out a way to, to create more conversations in them and we can do better on them. But it's been a remarkable uh, experience. I think I'd love to be part of something like that. No, no, it's great. And we do post them on YouTube like a week later. So, you know, anyone can take a look at them. So we're not trying to keep something secret. But, you know, in the moment, it's a special thing. You're in the study, you have access to investigators, you can ask questions. And if we don't get to all the questions, we try to then answer them and send them out to the group after that. And some people have very specific questions and we say, we really can't tell you what you should do for your care, but this community is really smart. I mean, people have spent a lot of time studying this, reading about it, trying to figure out what can be done. So it's a, it's a, it's a really good experience for us. And, and we're so grateful. These people who have long COVID, they do do so much research. It's not just Emily and I who, who have the privilege of talking to doctors and researchers like you, but so many people we come across know so much more about what's going on in their bodies. When we go into our meetings with our doctors, we speak in this medical jargon. Which can go both ways. Sometimes it's helpful and sometimes doctors find it massively offensive that you 
might know more about your condition than they do. This is why we have to change the culture of medicine. I may not always agree with what I hear, but I do know it's well thought out. By the way, I don't always agree with what my colleagues say or what other researchers say. I mean, we're all, we all have different opinions about how we're interpreting evidence, but the, there needs to be mutual respect. But when it comes to patients, we just got to move away from this top down, I know, and I'm just going to tell you what you need and what you need to do. It's more often in medicine that we're playing the odds. You know, it's, it's maybe this and maybe that. We have to try this, try that. By the way, there are no meds that everyone responds to. And whenever we talk about effective medications for anything, it's on average, this probably reduces risk or this does that. Not everyone who takes statins benefits from statins, not even counting anyone who might have side effects, but just they're, they're, there's a small number who avert things, avert heart attacks because they're taking statins. But most people have it doesn't. Who responds? Who doesn't? We've got a lot to learn. The profession needs that kind of humility. You know, it was built on a different era. 1950s, it was like, doctor went in the room, everyone got quiet. You know, they just, you need to be in bed for three weeks. And then the person went to bed for three weeks and, you know, whatever. But it, I'd like to be in bed for three weeks, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll prescribe that for you if you want. <laughs> Should we start digging down into some of the specifics now? Yeah. Can we talk to you about something that's very much after my own heart today, which is your recent study into internal tremors and vibrations? I've had a, a, a really good few weeks, but the past week I've had really bad muscle muscle tremors, I guess they are. But you've recently released a study. It's only in preprint at the moment, isn't it? Right. That's correct. Into internal tremors and vibrations in long COVID. It's one of those things that we've not actually really discussed with anyone yet, have we? But it's something that has afflicted me since the beginning. And I know that it affects a lot of people. Before we go into what your study revealed, can you tell us what are they? How do you define these? Well, why don't you start? Tell me what it is you're actually experiencing. So what I experience is it just feels like a flicking in my muscles and it can be in different parts of my body. At the moment, I've got it in the muscles below my eyes, which you sometimes get when you're tired and it's normal. But the time that I started to get them, I don't think I was particularly tired, but it just feels like a little flicker constantly in the muscles or it'll be constant for a while and then it goes. And it appears all over different parts of my body. Well, this is a good example of how why the researchers and doctors really need to partner with people because that wouldn't have been something I think that the researchers would have come up with. They would have put up their standard forms. They wouldn't have said that. But very early on, we were hearing about this. There was a Facebook group, a large Facebook group that Survivor Corps had run for a while, and they're no longer around. But at that time, they had lots of people, hundreds of thousands, maybe, of people that were on this Facebook group. And there was a this Heidi Ferrer was someone who had taken her life. It uh, it was a screenwriter in LA. And and in part because she had had very severe manifestations of this kind of sense of vibrations. And they were starting to ask questions of the Facebook uh, group. And and you were surfacing some of this stuff. And we were at that time talking with them. And we said, let's give voice to people on this Facebook group. And we worked with them to say, put out a survey about people just talking about their symptoms with regard to this. And a lot of people responded. And and then we went through a qualitative analysis of what people said, what they were experiencing. We actually pre-printed that maybe two years ago. What, What we were trying to do, I guess, as established researchers was to give some legitimacy 
to what people were saying. And we were saying, this isn't a traditional qualitative study. We're not following all the standard approaches and the probes and interviewing people. We're just asking people, tell us what you're experiencing. And then we're going to take that text and try to organize it so that we can then help convey what it is that they're doing. And, and we had patients on and, and we had others, other people on who are experiencing this. And when we did that paper and, and I, you know, I've almost never done something I got so much response on. There were so many people that came back just on this thing. The science wasn't very deep, but it was authentically what people were experiencing. And it was something lots of people hadn't heard before. What really amazed me and from the very beginning convinced me that this is something worthy of, of attention is that people who never met each other were describing the same sort of thing. So it wasn't like a whole bunch of people got together on a Saturday night and started influencing each other. These are people who had no contact, but it sounded the same. And yet there had been no real description of this. There is a description of in, internal tremors as sensation in, in Parkinson's for some people, but there hadn't been anything around COVID or anything. I know that you mentioned Parkinson's in your paper, but is it something that is prevalent in any other conditions? And even Parkinson's is not well characterized. I mean, I'm just saying it, it's at least been noted by some people that, that they had this sensation. So it's not really well characterized at all. When we put together the surveys for the LISTEN study, there's another piece to this, which is Hugo Health has a community called Kindred, where people exchange information, and then it's people who are eager to join studies, and they came into the LISTEN study. But the, the surveys actually sit on the kindred side as people fill out profiles and then they have that becomes part of their database they and they have agency over that data but we were working together with patients to put together what the surveys would look like we added that to the survey that it would be that question and a lot of other people i think have sort of missed that and we were able to do that because because it was it's a really patient generated set of symptoms that we put in some people may not like all the symptoms that are in that list i said i don't care these are symptoms people ask us to ask. And symptoms that people have. So yeah, there's even a question there for dandruff. People said that it, it, they had severe case of dandruff. We, we wanted to honor people's suggestions about what they wanted us to collect. So all that's in there. And then there's a medical student, Tiana Joe, who's the first author of this, who wants to go into neurology and became very interested in this. And Lindsay McAlpin, who's a neurologist at Yale, who has a long COVID clinic, we brought her in and we have other patients on this. And we said, let's just look at, if we compare the people who are reporting long COVID who have this versus people who don't, who are they? How are they different? Are they different with regard to their previous pre-existing conditions or their medications or how old they are, all the sorts of things that you might be interested in? And, and how's their health compared to it? And Tiana really, I thought, you know, worked with everyone and, and put together this beautiful piece. It's going to be better. Uh, we're going to update the preprint maybe in a week or two. It, we've just been through lots of iterations to make it better. But the bottom line was people who have this uh, actually compared with other people with long COVID who don't have it, have worse health status. They, they, they weren't differentiated on their age or demographics or, or pre-existing conditions, but it is affecting their lives substantially. And in a way I sort of fashion it is I think it's a form of peripheral neuropathy. And by the way, I think lots of people who have tinnitus, that may be a form of that internal yeah. vibration. Yeah. So I, I think it is that. That's one thing I was going to say. Is it tied to small fibrin neuropathy or the tinnitus? Because the tinnitus is something that's been very profound in me for two and a half years and the, and the pulsatile tinnitus as well. And maybe there are some, some kind of sensory neurological. I think it's the ears. 
oh, it's those nerves vibrating. You know, and, and the, the, of course, the interesting thing is there's no visualization of anything vibrating. It's what people feel inside that they're talking about, internal tremors. We have to begin to define this. So you guys need to help. What is it that we should call it? But I think it's like everyone who has it knows it. That's what this is. It's their words, not mine, when they call it internal tremors or, or the sense of vibrations. Mine are not just internal, though. Mine are also external. Noreen can tell how I am based on how shaky I am, basically. That's, a, I guess, a variation of it. Uh, but lots of people don't have anything visible. Really? But they're saying, oh, like, wow. my, my arm is vibrating. And does that restless leg syndrome, do you think, come into the same kind of thing? This is a question. Is this all sensory? And then maybe that's motor. I think there's a lot to learn about, but that's what we, why we're trying to say, let's get large numbers of people. Let me just say, here's the philosophy of the listen state, the way that we're fashioning it now. Large numbers of people who have filled out information about themselves, their symptoms, their profiles, and then beginning to hone down on subgroups. Because I think this idea of long COVID being a singular thing is, is a misnomer. We're playing around with different mechanisms, but even with the same mechanism, it may be that it manifests a little differently. Some people may be autonomic, primarily some people it may be peripheral, some people central, some combinations of that, trying to, to get a better taxonomy classification system of this. And then by, by pairing with Akiko, we can say, let's look at this internal tremors and vibrations group and, and let's see if we can immunophenotype them. Let's do this deep immunophenotyping, measuring thousands of different parameters of the immune system and see if they have signatures that are distinctive from people who don't have that syndrome. And does that begin to have give us both the means for diagnostic testing, but it also targets for therapeutic interventions? Does it begin to help us understand how is that happening? Why is it that they're experiencing that? And what can we do to help them? And so if we think about the LISTEN study, it's broad-based, large-scale. We're going to produce a preprint that just describes the whole cohort, the whole group. And I hope we can grow over time. But then now can we start to take out subgroups, people with tinnitus, people with autonomic dysfunction, and, and then now start to both characterize them better as well as begin for subsets to be able to do this deep immune phenotyping that can help us progress our basic biological understanding of what may be causing it. That's the idea behind it. And what I wanted to do was, in, in essence, take all these symptoms and create, if you think about it, an atlas of all the people that have long COVID. And you, you can imagine, if you think about it like an atlas, there's some people who live in this neighborhood and there's some people who live in this neighborhood. The people who live in these different neighborhoods are alike with regard to the manifestation of their long COVID. There's some people who live in rural areas. There's no one like them. You know, it's like <laughs> their thing is quite unique, but there's some people living in dense areas where it's quite, there are quite a lot of them who are exhibiting the same sort of syndrome. And then if we take all the information that Akiko is generating, can we create a similar atlas where who's alike and who's different? And then can we overlay them so that it helps us understand maybe a little better the similarities and differences among people who are currently getting this broad label of long COVID, which probably does an injustice to actually what, what they're really experiencing and, and in some ways slows progress because everyone's being grouped together. We are quite lucky that this is taking place at this time when we have the machine learning and the ability to compile so many different data points and to then extract multiple sets of information from that. And one of the things that's interesting about this study is that I think they called EQVAS scores, patient reported symptomology or patient reported, uh, th these tremors are, are reported by the patients. 
what you've just suggested a few moments ago there is that you actually then dig deeper into the sort of genetics or the science of the body. I know that some of your study does prove that it's not just what the patients are saying. But one of the things with long COVID that we have to consider is that actually perhaps it's our perception of pain or it's our, I mean, I have a really high pain threshold normally so it's not it's not like oh I, I think it hurts perhaps it's the the sensitivity to to pain and sensitivity to feeling in our bodies that can be interpreted differently in different patients well I think chronic disease also creates some rewiring of your brain too I mean when you're constantly over a long period of time facing substantial health challenges and symptomatology but I'm reluctant to attribute what people are experiencing to just a, simply a, a changing perception of their bodies. Although there was an interesting article in the New Yorker recently that was just talking about how people perceive things going on in their body and whether that's a source of distress for some people as, as they become sort of hypersensitive. To Hypervigilant. Sort of, yeah. yeah. Hyper- See, I've been actually told that by a doctor. I'm just afraid it's, it's, it's a way that people dismiss also. Being told that my tachycardia is because I'm hypervigilant. Oh I'm my like, gosh. Well, yeah, that's what I my worry. My watch is telling me. That I walked up the stairs and I'm 160, so I'm not just hypervigilant. And I'm absolutely not saying that I've got a, you know, that I'm oversensitive to these things, because this is a very physical thing thing that I have here. But I was just interested in your opinion on that, because some people could could say, oh, well, it's just that people, that's what they're reporting. I just worry things like that can be used as the means of dismissal. And so I just try to, I get it. It may be a contributor, potentially, who knows? It's just not where I'll go because I really want, again, to legitimize. And to me, people say, well, how do you know it's real? I'm going, you know, what's real is the suffering. I I can tell you that's real. So then if we're, if we're doctors and researchers, we ought to be searching for an understanding to relieve that suffering. There's no one who's getting secondary gain through this by acting this out. Is it possible among all the people with long COVID that there are some people who are having issues that are primarily psychological? Sure. But talk to these people. It just it doesn't make sense. It's so funny because the majority of people that we know with long COVID that we've spoken to or someone like Noreen and I, I mean. I mean, nobody wants to have this. Nobody wants to. No. Have this. And we are the last kind of people who go out trying to seek sympathy or trying to do less with our lives or who want to be housebound. No, you know, it's, it's silly. It's the, silly. The so that's why is... I want to at least do what I can to fight the dismissal, if mm. the least. I'd like to be able to do more than that by producing knowledge that actually makes a difference, but at least to try to under, have people understand and, and bring whatever credibility I have to bear on on that, I think I can help there. I want to just mention the trial real quick, just in case anyone's listening is interested. So the thing that we try to do, it's it's US only, contiguous states. So, But I know you have a broad reach of lead, listeners. And what, what we try to do is configure it to be maximally convenient. So this is what they call decentralized. There's no sites. People don't have to travel or schlep anywhere. Everything can be done from home. Surveys are done on devices. Uh, bloods are uh, someone can come to your home and collect saliva and bloods that Akiko is using to try to understand if there are any changes in the immune system over the course of treatment. We ship drugs to people's homes. We're talking to people all the time around any issues they have when they're on the drug. So it's 15 days of Paxlovid versus placebo slash ritonavir. And ritonavir has no real effect on the virus by itself, but can simulate some of the metallic taste that some people get so that it can keep the blinding. This trial, because we're using an antiviral, is 
focusing on the theory that that for many people, viral persistence may be a central contributor to what they're feeling. And the 15 days was chosen to give sort of a, a little bit longer treatment than we get because we know we can get the rebound with five days. So we thought it's arbitrary, but we thought 15 days and we didn't want to push longer because for some people it, it's not pleasant to take it. Lots of people don't have any problem with it, but some people do. And yeah, it's horrid. For some people that it can be. And so 15 days we thought was the most that we could try. Again, we're trying to use the same principle. So we're, we're going to, uh, 90 days after the last person finishes, we'll unblind. So we're following people for 24 weeks after randomization, but we were committed to saying we don't want people to not know what they were on for that whole time because some people, if it's effective, will want to take the med. So we're going to unblind. We'll, we'll have town halls. We're trying to communicate. We're trying to show respect, be worthy of their participation. We're only enrolling 100, but they're getting intensive, deep immunophenotyping. We've, we've so far got about 17 to 20 people in. But it is a good time to let people know. And the other thing is, if you've got listeners, we, we really do want to make this a diverse group of people. So in any communities of color, we're trying to emphasize people are very welcome and we want to try to do everything we can to have people feel that, that this is something they want to be part of. It's called the PAX-LC trial. If someone puts Yale and PAX-LC trial, they'll see it on the Yale site or it's registered at clinicaltrials.gov. And we also compensate people for their time. We want to Again, respect the, the hours that people spend doing this. So it, there's compensation for that too. Oh, so an actual trial that's designed with the patient's illness in mind. It's remarkable. Trying. <laughs> Trying. <laughs> it's been absolutely fascinating though. Tell us, do you have another uh, trial that you wanted to No, no, discuss? just the LISTEN study just and the, the Paxel study. Yeah, okay. yeah. And anyone around the world can join LISTEN study and become part of, you know, become part of that community. That'd be great. Anyone who wants to join. We never did get to the heart, but we will <laughs> maybe next time. You can have me on next time. Yeah. We didn't talk to a cardiologist about the heart. I know. <laughs> next time. Next time. Well, I hope we'll make progress against POTS. You know, actually, we want to do a, a, a paper like we're doing it with the vibrations, focusing on people with autonomic dysfunction and POTS. So, so Emily has the tremors. I have the POTS. All right. So, well, join us. Join Listen and, and help us. Well, we'll do. Join the research. You may have questions you want us to ask. Let's let's put out surveys for this group and try to make some progress. I do think that we should follow up with him because he is a cardiologist and I presume that you also have a load of questions <laughs> that you would like such an eminent cardiologist and someone who is working with the Kiko Osaki. There are these powerhouse relationships forming amongst the long COVID medical community. Yeah. It's quite incredible what these brains can do when they're put together. And there's such a kind of a mutual love and affection between them, you know, for each, for their personalities, let alone the work that they're doing. I know. It's remarkable, isn't it? No. Well, I'm going to sign off this week with just a really big, happy grin because I'm so happy that you're having a really good holiday and break and let's hope you don't crash when you get home. <laughs> yeah. Well, flying tomorrow... It's about 10 hours of travel to get off this island. So let's see how that goes. Thank you. You take care, my love. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.